Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with Anne-Marie Brown, Assistant Professor of Nursing at the University of Akron in Ohio and Advanced Practice Nurse in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Akron Children's Hospital. Dr. Brown will be talking about feeding in critically ill children and outcome. Welcome, Dr. Brown, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Dr. Parker. It's an honor to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. You were speaking at Congress uh, yesterday about the issues related to feeding in critically ill children. How did you become interested in feeding and the critically ill? I think it's a long-standing interest from back in my days as a staff nurse. Initially, I think we thought that we just needed to feed them so they didn't starve our kids in critically ill environments. But I came to learn over time that by itself, whether or not we could feed our kids seemed to make a difference. And at that point in time, there wasn't much in the literature that spoke to that. After I became a nurse practitioner, one of the first projects that was presented to me in our pediatric ICU was to reduce the variability around our feeding practices. So I undertook my first um, project, which was to introduce a protocolized feeding approach. And we found that we got our kids to goal feeds faster with no difference in intolerance. And from there launched my interest in nutrition research. So first of all, how do we decide what are goal feeds and what are the caloric goals in critically ill children? That is one of our biggest challenges. The most accurate methods that we have to date are to do what's commonly called indirect calorimetry. And what is most commonly done, there are several methods of that, is to do that via a metabolic cart, um, looking at respiratory exchange and the production of carbon dioxide to give us a sense of the, the energy being used and thus needed by our children. However, technologically, that's often very difficult to do in a critically ill patient, and particularly in the smaller patients under 10 kilos. So while that is the gold standard of the best we have today, what is more commonly done is there are a number of equations out there that are designed to assess the energy needs for our patients. And so probably the majority of patients, that's the means by which we do that. The literature is pretty replete at this point, though, recognizing that we can be either under or overfeeding using those equations. So that's an area in which we still have work to do to see if we can find a more precise measurement that's a little easier to apply at the bedside. So how do we know how much to feed them and how are we going to go about feeding them? So once by whatever method is used, we have a sense of what their daily energy and protein needs are because we need both of those things. Then there are a series of recommendations that were put out by ASPEN, the American Association of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. Their most recent guidelines on feeding the critically ill child were published in 2009. And probably one of their strongest comments at that time was uh, remarking around the paucity of good data on how we provide nutrition support to our children and a call for multicenter robust trials. So given the data then and the literature that's come out since that time, and those guidelines are actually under revision right now, um, we know that um, the general recommendation is to use the enteral approach first unless there's a contraindication. At the time of the guidelines, there wasn't enough evidence to say whether transpyloric approach as an initial approach versus gastric. Um, There wasn't enough evidence to say one or the other, but that it was very reasonable to start with a gastric approach unless there was a contraindication. 
because we know probably with almost all of our critical care therapies, the more our therapy mimics normal physiologic function often is the best approach. So there's been a fair amount of work done since that time on what are the best methods to feed children. We've identified a series of barriers towards the adequate delivery of enteral nutrition. Those include fluid restrictions, hemodynamic instability, and concern of feeding, particularly a patient who may be on vasopressors, um, feeding interruptions, which can be classified as avoidable or unavoidable, and lack of good measures to define feeding intolerance, not to mention the thresholds within those measures that should guide us when to continue or hold feeds for safety reasons. And lastly, the lack of organized feeding protocols or guidelines to reduce the variability around the delivery of enteral nutrition. And there's been a lot of work in the literature since those guidelines were published. We still don't have a best practice defined, but I think that there's clear literature that introduction of a protocolized approach, the same as we found in my ICU initially, improves delivery. We don't know if there's a best one yet, but simply introducing an organized approach and raising everyone's awareness improves the delivery of EN. What about um, continuous versus bolus feeding? Do we, what do we know about that? Does that make a difference? That's actually my current area of focus. I'm a proponent based on not only our experience in our hospital, but the literature that, again, to mimic what our patients normally do is to feed through the stomach unless there's a contraindication. Um, The question is, we normally eat essentially meals, right? So a bolus. And so there has been kind of a dogmatic assumption in critical care, though, that if we're going to feed the stomach, it should be continuous, that a slow and steady infusion is intuitively safer because if there's not a bolus feed, there would be less risk for reflux and emesis and the, and the biggest feared adverse consequence of ventral feeding aspiration. My argument and kind of the premise behind my current studies are that given the GI dysmotility that we know happens in critical illness, compounded by the immobility of ICU stays and many of our medications that also contribute to GI dysmotility, that we miss a couple of things. And one is that the stomach actually has improved motility when allowed a period of rest to allow the migrating motor complex to sweep and clear the debris, theoretically allowing for more normal gut biome and um, allowing for a period of rest, so increased motility than when feeds are reintroduced. In addition, if we're not running feeds constantly, then the times that there are necessary reasons to interrupt feeds, such as radiologic procedures, uh, could potentially be timed around the periods when the patient's bolus fed that they're not being fed, decreasing interruptions, increasing delivery of feeds. We conducted a single-center study last year in our PICU that our sample size was small, so underpowered, but we did find um, significantly improved delivery with bolus feeds, and these were all in intubated patients over continuous feeds with an equivalent safety profile. And we're getting ready to launch a multi-site replication study of that. We hope to start collecting data in the second half of this year. You uh, made reference earlier to one of the barriers to enteral feeding being the use of vasopressors. That's certainly been a rather controversial topic in people I've worked with. Can you talk a little bit about what do we know about the safety or not 
of enteral feeding in the presence of vasopressor therapy? Yeah, that has been a hot topic in the adult as well as the pediatric critical care literature. Um, There are now numerous studies in the adult ICU literature where they've compared feeding versus not feeding their patients and found equivalent tolerance and improved outcomes in the patients that received enteral nutrition. To the best of, of my knowledge, we really only have one strong study in the pediatric critical care literature that was published last year um, where a, a subgroup of a larger study done by um, Teresa Mikhailov and colleagues looked at all of the subjects in their study, which was an N of, I believe, around 385, who were on vasopressor support. And they compared those who received enteral feedings and who did not receive enteral feedings up through the first four days of admission. So indeed, um, whether or not it's safe to feed children who are on vasopressors is controversial. There are now a growing number of studies in the adult ICU literature suggesting that not only can that be done safely with no increased risk of adverse events, but there are improved outcomes with those who receive enteral nutrition, even if they don't get to full enteral nutrition, versus those who are left unfed. In the pediatric ICU world, to the best of my knowledge, we've only really seen one good study um, examining that to date. And it was a retrospective look, um, a sub-analysis of a larger study done by Teresa Mikhailov and colleagues um, led by um, Anchurva Panchal, where she looked at nearly 400 patients in this larger study where we examined subjects up through the first four days of PICU admission. And she looked only at those who were on vasopressors during that time and examined those who received enteral nutrition and compared those to those who did not during those four days. Her primary outcomes were on the incidence of adverse events, GI events such as vomiting, constipation, diarrhea, and those types of events. And she also looked at NEC, necrotizing enterocolitis, probably the other kind of entity that we are very concerned about to feed a gut that may be vasoconstricted due to the critical illness and then perhaps compounded by the vasopressor therapy that we have them currently under. And she found no difference in GI adverse events between those who were fed and not fed. Um, There was, I think, only one incidence of neck in either group. And um, there was only feeding intolerance events in the fed group, but that's kind of self-explanatory. You can't have feeding intolerance if you're not being fed. (laughs) Um, And while the study was not adequately powered to answer that question, they also saw a significant trend towards um, lesser mortality in the fed group compared to non-fed group. And that was even when matching for severity of illness um, using the PIM2 score and looking at differences between centers. What about metabolic acidosis or lactic acidosis with feeding in the presence of a potentially compromised gut? Is that something that you worry about, monitor for? That is one of, I think, our burgeoning horizon in critical care nutrition research is whether or not we have biomarkers that are practical and predictive and reliable that could perhaps, especially in high-risk populations, such as those on vasopressors, such as those who, for example, the congenital heart disease kids who are with pulmonary overcirculation and we're already perhaps worried about the cardiac output to the gut, are there markers that can give us essentially an early warning system, perhaps before we see clinical indications, such as conventional feeding intolerance markers? Um, And we don't have any answers for that yet. Bodo Larson and colleagues out of Canada 
have done some very small sample size preliminary looks and that prealbumin by itself is not helpful but that perhaps because we know inflammation is a primary driver in critical care illness in almost every patient almost regardless of the etiology of what brought them to our units that pairing a CRP and a prealbumin not in a single measure but rather serially may provide some information because when patients are catabolic and in that early high inflammation state, the CRP is going to be up and we know the prealbumin is going to be low. Metabolically, due to some of the work uh, measuring indirect calorimetry in those kinds of patients, that their energy needs during that time are actually probably relatively low, which is different than we used to think. But their protein needs, because they're catabolic, are probably fairly high. So if we can provide them nutrition in that time frame, a little less energy, but even if that means supplementing, and again, this is where we think we're going in the literature, to make sure they get their required protein. And then as we see the CRP fall and the prealbumin come up, the, the inflammatory phase is dropping, they're leaving catabolism and entering back into an anabolic state, now their energy needs also go up. And that those markers may then give us earlier predictors of it's time to change our feeding approach. Because I think one of our other mistakes is to do however we do it, an indirect calorimetry cart measurement, equations to say that whatever we measure them on day one or day two represents their needs throughout their PICU stay. That's clearly not the case. And they probably need to be measured at least every three to four days. So Katri Tipo and her colleagues um, are also looking at other types of biomarkers. Her particular interest is in the congenital heart disease group, but I think their work shows promise that could be applicable to other of our higher acuity kids in the PICU to say, is there something that can give us an early warning system? Does lactate make a difference? It would be nonspecific, certainly, Mm -hmm. but can it help us? We don't know the answer to that yet. You talked a little bit earlier about sort of generically improving outcomes with better nutrition, particularly in the kids receiving vasopressors, but just in critically ill children in general. What outcomes are we talking about? Are we talking survival, length of stay, mechanical ventilation days? What are, you know, what outcomes are we targeting besides just, you know, nutritional goals certainly is something that we'd like to meet, but what are the ultimate outcomes that we're affecting? Yeah, so it's kind of the, you know, why? Why does it matter? Right. You know, if we meet the nutritional goal, (laughs) does it make a difference or our patients, or is it just something we're working on that doesn't matter? We've More diapers to change. Yeah, exactly. But what we've found is there are a couple of significant studies that have come out just in the last couple years that clearly indicate that adequate delivery of enteral nutrition, at least, does make a difference in outcomes for our patients. It does reduce um, length of stay in both PICU and the hospital, at least in some studies, decreased duration of mechanical ventilation. And in both the study by Teresa Mikhailov and colleagues, um, I was privileged to be one of the investigators in that study where we did a retrospective look at more than 5,000 patients. And what we looked at were those who received early enteral nutrition defined as achieving at least 25% of goal calories within the first 48 hours of PICU admission versus those who didn't achieve early enteral nutrition. And we found um, an odds ratio of 0.51, so a significantly lower uh, risk of mortality um, for those who did receive early enteral nutrition. And that was matching for severity of illness by site, 
And that's not even a whole lot of calories. No. And so one of the questions for, for future research that we have is, what is at least that we know we want to get them towards target, but if we can't get there, which will probably always be a challenge, mm-hmm. is there a minimum dose, if you will, just like a, a, a minimum effective dose of a medication? We need to think about nutritionist therapy. What's the minimum dose we need to try to achieve to confer the optimum benefit? Nalesh Mehta and colleagues out of Boston conducted a prospective observational study international of I think 31 PICUs in about eight countries, and they also found, using a little bit different metric, for patients who were able to reach the second tertile, so 66% of target enteral feeds again compared to the first tertile, 33%, had a significantly lower risk of mortality in a multivariate analysis. And they also found that sites that had feeding protocols had a lower risk of mortality and also a lower incidence of healthcare-acquired infections. You've talked um, primarily about enteral feeding thus far. What mm-hmm. about parenteral feeding? Parenteral feeding is an area of a fair amount of controversy right now. We know clearly there are children that need it. In both the Mikhailov and the Meta study that I just talked about, they both found that the use of early enteral nutrition within those first few days appeared to be correlated with a significant increase in risk of mortality, again, when matching for severity of illness and controlling for center. Early parenteral mm-hmm. nutrition. Early parenteral nutrition, yes. And having said that, I think we need to take that with a note of caution because neither of those studies were targeted at parenteral nutrition. There's some study in the adult literature that says if you can combine enteral and parenteral nutrition, even if perhaps you only do what is sometimes referred to as trophic or trickle Mm -hmm. feeds, like say up to about 15% of their energy requirement, that you still confer the benefit of EN of maintaining gut integrity uh, of the endothelial um, lining, and that may or may not then attenuate any increased risk of PN alone. So there are not specific recommendations right now from our Aspen colleagues. I think they'll come with the new guidelines. But the overall general recommendations are in non-severely malnourished patients, so patients that come to us reasonably nourished, that depending on whether you look at the European versus the American guidelines, to not start parenteral nutrition for either three or seven days, depending on which set of guidelines you follow. Now, clearly, we have some subpopulations that you have to consider parenteral nutrition very early, those with intestinal failure, those who come to you severely malnourished, and any kind of reasonable delivery of EN is not a possibility. Mm -hmm. So that's, again, an area ripe for future research. Do you have suggestions for us about how to improve our nutritional support of critically ill children? What, what major points would you um, tell us who are practicing in the PICU? How do we improve? How do we do a better job of feeding kids? I think in a nutshell, if I had to give one single recommendation, it would be to look at nutritionist therapy and thus to put together guidelines and to create uh, an organized practice around nutrition delivery that includes a few key components active inclusion of our registered dietitians within the first day of admission 
which includes entry of their recommended energy and protein delivery, entered into the medical record. Martin Wakeham and colleagues published an article within the last couple of years that showed that subjects who had their nutrition requirements entered into the medical record by the RD got closer to that goal than those who did not. The second one would be to use indirect calorimetry whenever is feasible, particularly on our sicker children or those who clearly likely have an atypical energy requirement. Some of our chronically critically ill children, um, we actually tend to overfeed because their metabolic rate is pretty low. But whatever method you use to make sure you measure serially for our longer stay patients, to have an organized feeding protocol. Again, we don't know what the best practice is yet, but we it, it's clear that having a organized approach, a protocolized approach to feeding, deciding measures that are based on current best evidence, when to start feeds, when to hold feeds in terms of intolerance, that is nurse-driven at the bedside so the nurses don't have to find a provider to say we need to move feeds forward, mm-hmm. are the protocols that are improving delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a those package, are, that's probably three, the keys. Those are three very practical points that um, are good take-home messages. Uh, Do you have any other comments you'd like to make? I think just in closing, I would just emphasize one more time, for those of us in this field, uh, we're really working to move the terminology from nutrition support, that it's in the background to the foreground, and say nutrition therapy. One of my colleagues actually argues and says we should say it's metabolic therapy, that nutrition (laughs) is one piece of metabolic therapy. We know that we can modify the inflammatory response, which can be so ravaging to our patients by delivering adequate nutrition, probably help improve our gut biome, and thus by maintaining a more normal gut biome by feeding, we decrease the virulence and the presence of the pathogenic gut organisms that so often occur, hopefully preventing secondary infections. Mm -hmm. By not just avoiding loss, but maintaining muscle integrity that we will return our children to their best functional capacity, looking at things past mortality. Mm -hmm. How are our children doing not just when they leave our ICU, but six months, one year, and five years down the road? Mm -hmm. That it's an area ripe for not only further research, but I think exciting opportunities on how we can positively impact the children entrusted to us. Thank you very much. It's been really interesting talking with you today, Anne-Marie. Thank you. I appreciate it. We have been talking today with Dr. Anne-Marie Brown from the University of Akron in Ohio about feeding critically ill children and outcomes. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, M.D., MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. 
A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.